good morning. It's, uh, I want to say it's good to be with you, but of course I'm not. These aren't uh, typical circumstances, uh, but we, we are pushing through nonetheless. Even though I can't be with you in person, uh, we can be with you through the technology that God has gifted to our church, and I am confident that His Word still won't return void, and that this will be an edifying time for all of us this morning, uh, even though I cannot be with you there in person. Well, we've finally made it. We are concluding the book of First Peter this morning, and uh, I'm not sure uh, what exactly is operating behind the scenes here when we decide who gets uh, what text or passage to cover when we study these books together. Uh, but I think after I'm finished today, I will have uh, had the opportunity to teach you through about four verses of First Peter. The last time I was with you, we took a look at one, dealing with the husband and wife relationship, and uh, this morning we are looking at the conclusion. But there's a lot here, and I'd like to get right to it with you. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing is getting to know a little bit about my family history and ancestry. And on my mother's side, we have uh, Scottish ancestors. And my grandmother's maiden name is McKnight, and her clan, her Scottish clan, when you go back far enough, is McNaughton. And as I did some research on that, I discovered that not only were my ancestors on this side of the family Scottish, but they had the privilege of serving uh, their country by defending uh, what may be as many as three different castles in Scotland. And one on the screen for you is one that much of it is still standing, and I may mispronounce it, but I believe this is the uh, Dunderave Castle in Scotland. And on my bucket list is a trip to Scotland, and I would love to be able to just walk the stairs in a castle like this and touch the stones and uh, have a sense that that's a place that perhaps some of my ancestors uh, guarded and, and kept and defended for some time. And as I've learned more about that Scottish ancestry and the clan McNaughton, it was interesting. I picked up at a Celtic heritage story uh, an item to put on my keychain. And uh, on the front of that keychain is a remnant of one of these castles. On the back is something quite interesting uh, that I believe relates to today's message, but I'll share with you at the end of our time together this morning. Let's get to the verses for our text today. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll be reading together verses 12 through 14. It says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen... Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, at first glance, at first reading, uh, I wasn't sure what we'd be working through today, but as I spent a bit more time paying careful attention to the intentional word choices that Peter made in this passage, I found that we really have all we need to summarize the book of 1 Peter. Now, of course, we'll reference some other places that we've been along the way, but I, I believe, and I, I have now concluded, that in these short verses, 
uh, is a statement that Peter writes to summarize his epistle. And so when we look at it again, that statement uh, that I now have underlined for you is, this is the true grace of God. That first part, there's a second statement he makes that we'll get to here shortly. But I want to drill down a bit with you this morning on that first statement. And the key word there is this. And that this that he's referring to is most specifically his epistle, his letter, but more broadly, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. That this revelation from God in written form is the true grace of God. Let's take a look at how he has expounded upon that concept. What, what gospel principles has he shared with us that we can rightly call the true grace of God? Well, first of all, he tells us that we've been given a new identity as believers in Jesus Christ. And he uses the word chosen. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he opens with some similar wording that he uses when he closes, but in this case he uses words that we have here, the elect exiles, the foreknowledge of God. And so part of our new identity in Christ is that we are a chosen people. And that that is one principle from the true grace of God, which is His written word, and most specifically, this epistle from Peter. Secondly, our new identity means that we've been born again to a living hope. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so now we have been chosen. And secondly, we have been born again through Jesus Christ to a living hope. And I think he's already foreshadowing early on in this letter, just three verses in, what ought to be coupled with what we've established as the theme of this epistle. We've been rightly teaching you over the last several weeks that the theme of 1 Peter is indeed suffering. But I believe we ought to enhance that ever so slightly and maybe suggest that it's this, suffering with hope. He now states that as a distinguishing characteristic of our new identity as chosen people, that we now have hope. As he continues in his letter, we see a third distinction of our new identity. We are given an inheritance. In verse 4 of the first chapter, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so now we have this new identity. We've been chosen, brought into the family of God. We have been uh, given uh, a living hope. And that hope is fixed in an inheritance that is awaiting us, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we 
can trust in that because it's being kept in heaven by God Himself for you and for me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a wonderful new identity that we've been given. And these are principles given to us from the true grace of God, His written word. But it's not just a new identity. He also talks about our new purpose. And because we're new people, we now have a new purpose for life. And this is where he's covered many of the intensely practical applications uh, that we've covered over the last several weeks. Now remember, he, he articulated in the first few verses of chapter 1 that this has all been done so that we might live in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's our new purpose. But then he gives us specifics in terms of what that obedience to Jesus Christ looks like. And so the first element, the first uh, distinction for our new purpose is that we are to be holy in behavior. Again, in chapter 1, verse 13 to 16, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? We're new. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so just as he's getting started, he indicates that the part of our obedience to Christ is to demonstrate a holiness to the watching world. And then he's going to, later as he moves into his letter, show us how exactly can we do that? How exactly can we have holy behavior that that is to be set apart from the world around us so clearly, so distinctly, that when people see that, they know that there's a difference in our life. Uh, John MacArthur, in, in talking about these principles from 1 Peter, said the following. He said, Christians must stand against the enemy and silence the critics by the power of holy lives. And I agree. And I think that that's one of the things that Peter is getting at in his letter. That when we endure the circumstances of life, no matter how challenging they might be, we are to be holy in our behavior. And that holy behavior will silence those who criticize us. It's a powerful thing that God has called us to do and that He can do through our obedience to Him. Our new purpose isn't simply to be holy in behavior, but to also grow in our salvation. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so there's a growing here. Uh, it's not a one-and-done deal. We are chosen. We are given a new identity and perishable inheritance. But we are also given this new purpose. And as we live out that purpose, what we're doing is we're maturing in our faith and we're growing in the salvation that we've been given. Thirdly, he says, as to our new purpose, that we ought to be ready to explain the reason for our hope. Chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. 
So we are to be ready to explain the reason for our hope. And it's critical that hope is what they see, what the watching world sees when we endure the experiences of life, particularly the challenging ones, particularly when circumstances aren't going the way that we prefer. Those are, uh, those are moments and opportunities with, with the enhanced ministry of demonstrating our holiness becomes all the more clear that when we're suffering, that's not when we abandon our, what we've been given in the true grace of God, but when we cling to it all the more. And as we do that, and as we live that way, that's so set apart from the average person, they're going to ask, how is it you can live that way? How is it when life is falling apart that you have this hope about you? When you see the world in crisis, how is it that you aren't restless at night? And then he gives us specific examples, right? And they come to us and ask, your employer's awfully harsh. How is it that you engage your work with such hope? Your spouse is an unbeliever and presenting such challenges for you in your marriage. How is it that you still have hope? The government is not just and fair and is doing things that, that makes your life and my life more difficult. How is it that you're still living with hope? But of course, none of those questions will come if hope can't be seen. It must. It must be seen. And as we go on and talk about our new purpose, consider these things, uh, Peter himself continues, and that he tells us we should endure suffering. All those kinds of examples he gave, suffering under government, suffering in the context of marriage, suffering in the context of uh, a harsh employment environment, but we endure those things, we endure that suffering as a way of bringing glory to God. Where does he say that? Chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If we're being insulted and criticized, because of the hope we have in Christ, then that's actually an affirmation that we're living life the way we've been called to live it. But then he says in verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so our suffering becomes a vehicle for bringing glory to God. And he, he gives us that, that, that specificity there, right? That that if we are going to suffer, we need to make sure it's not for worthless things, that our suffering isn't the result of our own poor choices. But if our suffering is as a result of our hope-filled life that we have in Christ, and how clearly we're demonstrating our new identity and new purpose to all people, despite the suffering we're going through, then that's something that will bring glory to God. And it may very well be, as hard as it is, to imagine, to think about, to grasp, at least for me, that God may allow suffering to come into our life specifically because He wishes to extract glory for Himself out of that moment. And Peter says, if that's us, if that's our life, don't 
be ashamed of that. Rejoice in that. These are hard words, but they're words given to us in this true grace of God that Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us. Charles Spurgeon once said, We must expect trial because trial is the element of faith. Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. He got it. He understood it. That sometimes trials and suffering are necessary. Necessary means by which God gains the glory He so rightly deserves out of our lives. And so trial is often necessary as we take this journey of faith. Lastly, Peter says our new purpose is that we are to be on the alert for the enemy. We just most recently covered this passage. He says, at the end of chapter 5, starting at verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What an encouragement that is. When we suffer for the name of Christ, we're not alone. We're not alone because God is with us in those moments, but we're also not alone because in that suffering, we join the suffering of not only the people of faith that have come before us, but the brothers and sisters in Christ who are alive with us right now, this morning, who are suffering around the world for the name of Christ. We don't do this alone. We do this in the community of believers. And we, knowing that, should be taking time regularly to pray for those people who are suffering. We have many times allowed ourselves to characterize some of what we've been experiencing in our own country over the last several years as suffering. And perhaps to some degree that's true, but boy, it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the stories we find in the martyrs. It doesn't compare to the stories we're hearing about with our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like Afghanistan. And they need our prayers. Well, I told you there was a second statement in this closing passage. And it's this. Stand firm in it. What's the it? It's the this. The gospel, the true grace of God, has revealed word to us. We are to stand firm in all the kinds of principles we've just summarized. Stand firm in our new purpose and stand firm in our new identity. So he elaborates on that in his letter as well. And the question is this, from where do we get the strength to stand firm in the true grace of God, to stand firm on His Word and the principles found in it? Where do we get the strength to do that? And I believe Peter's answered that question along the way as well. And I believe it's one key characteristic that we've already passed by, and it's hope. 
And, and, and I hope, like me, once we go through this, it, you won't be able to unsee it. It was everywhere along the way. Hope. In chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the hope we have through the resurrection of Christ. Let's see it again. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because our Savior didn't stay dead and rose again, we have hope. Hope in His resurrection. And that hope should be clearly displayed as we embrace and stand firm in our new identity and our new purpose. He talks about in, ver in chapter 1, verse 13, that we have hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. It says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And because our God is alive, because Jesus came back from the dead, we know we will see Him again. And in His Word, in the true grace of God given to us in His Scriptures, we are promised by Jesus Himself that even though He left, He will return. And it reminds us that what we're experiencing right now, number one, this is not all there is. Number two, when our lives on this earth come to an end, there's more. And should He decide to do so, He may return in our lifetime. But knowing these, those three things, we have hope. We have hope in seeing our Savior again. Thirdly, He talks about hope in God. Chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 3, verse 5, we'll take a look at it. In chapter 1, he says, "...who through Him are believers in God, through Jesus Christ, who God raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And if our faith and hope are in God and rest in Him and is kept in Him, then how, how much safer or more secure could it possibly be?" In chapter 3, he says this, when he was talking about... Uh, women who might be suffering in a marriage to an unbeliever, he, he talked about how holy women, in, in chapter 3, verse 5, this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. How is it that they were able to live that way? It's because their hope wasn't in this world. Their hope wasn't even in their marriage. Their hope was in God. And that's how they were able to find the strength to stand firm in their new identity, in their new purpose. And, and to demonstrate that identity and purpose through their submission to their husbands. Because they had hope. He talks about hope found in the very believer. Chapter 3, verse 15. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always preparing to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, and this is so key, do it with gentleness and respect. And so we have hope found in the very believer, planted there by the grace of God. And as people see that, they will ask. And we need to be ready to share with them that hope, to invite them to receive it for themselves. 
As we think about these two things, considering our new purpose, our new identity, and now also where we find the strength to stand firm in those things, being the hope we have in Christ, in God, a hope that's been planted within the very hearts of the believer by God Himself. I would like to look at some encouragement from a, a colleague of Peter's, and his name was Paul. Paul enhances this a bit and offers us a, a bit more to consider this morning. First of all, Paul says, we were once without hope as others still are. And it's important that we keep this in mind. Day to day, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 16, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You think about that. You and I must remember that at one point in our lives, we were without this hope. We were. Now, by the grace of God, we have it. And it's His expectation that we be demonstrating that hope clearly for all to see. Whether we're going through times that are easy or times that are hard. But we also need to keep in mind that there are so many in the world, many of those watching people are living life without hope still today. And their one chance to glimpse that hope might be through your life or mine. Paul goes on, says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. For he himself is our peace now, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now specifically speaking, Paul might have very well been addressing ethnic hostility in the church between Jews and Gentiles. It's likely the case. And that dividing wall of hostility that Jesus Christ destroyed was that ethnic tension between the Jews and the Gentiles because through the work of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, He has now created one man out of two. He brought them together in the person of Jesus Christ, now part of the same family of God. They can now call themselves brothers. And what a wonderful thing that is. Paul also reminds us this, that we have hope in the coming of Jesus and the reunion of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. There's a distinction there. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, the true grace of God, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. 
And so these encouragements from Paul remind us that we were once without that hope as others still are. We need to remember that. That keeps us humble as we once lived without hope, and it should keep us hungry for others to come to know that hope. But then he also reminds us that we have this hope, not only in the coming of Jesus, but in being reunited with fellow believers. He concludes that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 by saying this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a wonderful thing, a wonderful promise, a wonderful source of the hope that we have. And he says in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That word encourage could rightly be translated, give hope to. Give hope to one another with these truths. Brothers and sisters, when we see others who are struggling, who are suffering, who might be going through a difficult time and, and, and they're falling in despair or, or grumbling or complaining, we can reach out to them and say, let, let me give you some hope. Jesus is coming. Let me give you some hope. We will see our brothers and sisters in Christ who died. We will see them again. Let me give you some hope. We were once alienated from God, but through Christ's death and resurrection, we've now been made one with Him and His family. Encourage one another. So to summarize our time in this passage this morning, it would be to say this, as Christians, we are to stand firm in the true grace of God even when we suffer. We find the strength to do this in the hope that we have in God. By doing so, we encourage fellow suffering believers and provoke questions from those who are without the one thing they desperately need, but which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Hope. It's my, not just my personal opinion that this accurately summarizes the letter, this letter from Peter. But I believe that's, a, that's what he's done with the words he chose to use in his final greeting. That this, this revealed word is the true grace of God and we are to stand firm in it. By those two statements, he points us back to so much of what he taught us in this letter. Our new identity, our new purpose, and the strength we will find to stand firm in those things because of the hope we have. I've been asked at times how I would define hope, and I'm not going to claim this to my personal definition. I'm sure I heard it from somebody or read it from somewhere, but it wasn't coming to mind. But I would answer this way. Hope is the confident expectation of a future reality. We should be people who are confident, confidently expecting the promises, the future reality promised to us in God's Word. Hope. Colossians 1.27 
says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there it is again. Our hope is in that future reality. But then he also says, this mystery, this mystery gives us hope. And that mystery is Christ in you, in me. So I guess I would whittle down my definition of hope even further and and simply suggest that hope is Christ in you. And so when you see a fellow brother or sister begin to despair, begin to lament as though there's no hope, begin to complain or or grumble or get bitter or, or the kinds of things that Peter warned us not to fall into, you come alongside that person and you could simply say this, Christ in you. That's your hope. It lives within you. Here's the possible application this morning. My apologies if the text is tiny. We'll leave this up on the screen for a few minutes because I purposefully left this part blank on your handouts because I wanted you to take the time to write these things out. But prayerfully consider whether or not you are demonstrating hope for your conduct To help you assess this, contemplate how long it has been since someone asked about the hope you have. When's the last time someone came up to you and said, What is it, man? Where does the hope come from? And if we sit here and think and ponder, and we just can't remember... Perhaps we should consider how clearly demonstrated our hope is. Secondly, confess to God where you may have fallen into despair, anxiety, bitterness, or grumbling. Repent from this behavior, turn from it, and establish steps to take for growth and invite accountability. Confession and repentance must be the beginning, but not the end. So you confess it, you repent, you turn from it. But then I would encourage you to consider what will your steps be at this point. And invite accountability in your life. Share this with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So that if they see you, go off to the side, into that anxiety, into that fear, into that bitterness, into that grumbling. They can come alongside you with your permission and say, Christ in you. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Lastly, I'd encourage you to join a fellow believer, a spouse, child, grandchild, a friend, and study the life of someone from Scripture who demonstrated hope in the midst of suffering. And then discuss possible applications for your own life, some of which may help you prepare to suffer for God's glory yourself. Keep in mind that the man who wrote this letter is one such person who we believe would suffer a martyr's death by crucifixion, and if church history is correct, first saw his own wife crucified before he was. And he was demonstrating hope, knowing that that martyr's death was coming for him, 
Listen, when Jesus came back from death, he had a conversation with Peter in which he asked him three times if he loved him. And at the end of that conversation, Jesus says something like, when you are older, people will dress you for, your, for yourself, and they will take you where you don't want to go. And, and at first we think, I don't know what that even means. But the text goes on to say that Jesus told Peter this so that he would know by what death he would glorify God. Whoa. So he knew from that point forward, he would die a martyr's death. Look at the hope he demonstrated in his letter. Study those examples. Here are some suggested resources for you, just to get you started, that you can take note of. Pick one or two. Don't attempt to write them all down in this moment. And if you want them all, uh, email me and I'll give them to you. But these are great places to start where, well, what I want you to do is I want you to read that chapter and then observe where you see hope demonstrated in those verses. And I am, I am confident you will be edified by that. I also would like to suggest to you some possible resources. And again, you can just pick one or two. Don't write all of them down. And if you want them all, let me know. But you could read, read and, and sing or read the stories of hymns about hope. Great is thy faithfulness in Christ alone. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. A great hymn called, My God, I Thank Thee, Who Has Made, which is, from what I understand, out of the United Kingdom. And it's interesting, you want to be careful when you look up that hymn, and I'd encourage you to do it, there, are, there should be at least four verses, and in many modern hymnals, there are only three. Let me read to you the one verse, incidentally, that's removed from many modern hymn books. Think about these words. The author says, I thank thee too that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. That is deep. Thanking God that the experience of this life has been allowed to be tainted just a bit so that we wouldn't grow so comfortable here but long for the home we have. Read these stories. Read books about hope. And what, what concerned me is I couldn't find many. And I'm, I'm currently reading one right now and I find, find it to be very edifying about, uh, written by a man who I think demonstrates hope in his life, Alistair Begg. And the book is about a man in Scripture who demonstrated hope and that's Daniel. I highly recommend this book. I have not yet quite finished it, but it's, it's been really helpful so far. Well, I want to go back in the last minute or two to the story I shared with you about my Scottish ancestry. And I told you that I picked up an item from my keychain from the Celtic Heritage Store, and on the front of my, my particular item is the tower and the clan name. On the back is the inscription you can see above the tower in this image, this version of it. The motto for Clan McNaughton was, I hope in God. And when I was reading through this text and studying it and preparing the sermon, I, I re, re, was reminded about this item. I turned it over and it was such an encouragement. Hope. Chuck Colson once said, 
Where is the hope? I meet millions who tell me that they feel demoralized by the decay around us. We could be speaking now. Where is the hope? The hope that each of us have is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things that we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. And that's where our hope is in this country. And that's where our hope is in life. I hope you agree. Chuck saw it. Our hope is not in this world. And if that's where it is, what people will see is anxiety and fear and anger and bitterness and resentment and grumbling. But if our hope is firmly fixed where it ought to be, as chosen people, given a new purpose, then what they'll see is hope. Christian Standard Bible Commentary makes, makes this comment. When Christians are being persecuted on earth, Heaven's peace cannot be taken from them. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Persecution, a great time of it, could be coming in our lifetime. I don't know. I tend to stay out of the prophesying the future game unless it's written clearly in God's Word. But should it come, do you believe this morning that Heaven's peace cannot be taken from you? Anchor your hope in that truth. It's been my pleasure to to share this with you this morning. It's been my prayer that it's edifying to you. I'm so sorry that it's uh, it's in this format, but you should have heard by now. It's the reason this is happening is because I've been uh, tested positive for COVID, and if you can't tell, I'm losing my voice as as, as I speak. Uh, for those of you who might be interested, I, I promise you this is not gimmick. I ran it by my wife. She thought it was a good idea. I invite you to join me Monday through Friday this upcoming week while I'll be isolated and quarantined with my family. And I'm going to try to release a short video on my Facebook page each day, Monday to Friday. And I promise it'll be short. And we'll look at some of the passages I recommended today and where we see the hope. Might read a hymn story and how that gives us hope. And I'll also update you along the way as to how I and my family are doing. I'd encourage you to join me on that. And if you, if you haven't connected with me on Facebook yet, send me an email and, and I'll look you up and we'll get connected. But let me close this time with you. Just knowing that I'm someone who now has an illness and I don't know where it's going to lead. But I have hope. I have hope. And if you find me at any time posting or sharing with you that hope isn't clear, you respond to me and say, Christ in you, Pastor Aaron. Let me close with you the same way that Peter did with his readers. May the peace in Christ be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us to be here today. God, my heart is broken because I cannot be with my brothers and sisters this morning. But this must be ordained by you. And it should be at this time that I have this experience in my life. I'm grateful through technology I was able to share the results of my time with you and your word in this passage over the last couple weeks. And I pray, God, that you would use it mightily, not only in my life, but in the lives of 
that you would cultivate within us a spirit that clearly demonstrates to all who are watching the hope that we have in you. Make us people of hope. May we then find opportunities to share with others that hope that they too, according to your will, would be given the same. Work in us in this way, Lord. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.